hello. This is the Ranting Soccer Dad podcast for March 14th, 2018. I'm your host, Bo Dewar. This is my 29th episode. Actually, 30th, if you count that little intro that I did. Time flies, doesn't it? I didn't realize it had been more than half a year since I started doing this, even after taking time off during the Olympics and during the holidays. So uh, thanks for continuing to listen. This is really great. Uh, My guest today, this is a little different. Uh, I've had Hall of Famers on. I've had current players on, current administrators, people who are fairly big in the game. This week, it's a guy who emailed me, and he's a very thoughtful guy. He is a parent and a coach. I guess you could say parent coach, but he started coaching before he was a parent. And so, you know, you run into a distinction there. I mean, you know, technically, I guess Bob Bradley is a parent coach, right? He's a parent and he's a coach. And he coached his own son and just happened to be on the U.S. national team. Uh, Anyway, his name is Mike Dabbitt. He lives in eastern Pennsylvania. Uh, He's from the Scranton-Wilkes-Bear area area, so I had to avoid the urge to make any references to the office, set in Scranton, of course. And we had an interesting conversation that the goal was to make me feel better about youth soccer, and I think he did. We also came up with an interesting idea about coaching education right at the very end of the the discussion. So it was a fun, open-ended discussion which we covered a lot of ground in youth soccer and talked about what's good about it. Good interview. There's a little bit of a technical glitch. There's a hum that comes and goes. I'm not sure what caused that. I didn't notice it during the recording. It was only when I brought it over into Audacity from Google Voice that I noticed it. So I don't really know what happened there. Other things in the works in the Ranting Soccer Dad universe. Uh, yes, I know I need to get to work on the Ranting Soccer Dad guide. It's one of those things where I'm trying to sort of tie up all these other loose ends before I do that. Now, granted, I had uh, one of those loose ends was my taxes. So <laughs> it's about that time of year. You know, the Olympics are done, but that just means there's one thing that sitting on my plate that I really had to get done over the weekend. And I'm also trying to just kind of sort out some conversations on the adult and professional side of the game. I wrote a piece recently that explained, with some prompting from a phone call that I had recently, it explained a bit about where I'm coming from, what my mindset is. And I felt I should do it before I really dig into the guide because it explains my approach in terms of objectivity and fairness and balance and so forth and all those buzzwords. So I'm also working on a wrap-up of, you know, the the typical professional promotion relegation issues, those sorts of things, just to try to put a bow on that. Sorry, pardon the pun. My name's Bo, yes. Uh, But just to sort of wrap up those conversations, uh, also just to sort of save time on Twitter because it seems like the same conversations come up over and over again and just want to be able to point people to one page. I've been pointing them to a category uh, on my blog, but I think I just want to point to one page and let it go from there. And then I'll feel like I can really dig into the guide. There's a summit held over the weekend in Chattanooga. And I feel like I'm involved in it slightly because a couple of weeks ago, Robert Palmer, the owner of the Jacksonville Armada, uh, which had been playing in the NASL, was on Jason Davis's show on Sirius XM. Now, Palmer is one of those guys who's very new to soccer, as are pretty much all of the guys in NASL now. I mean, uh, Okay, Ricardo Silva and Rocco Camiso, I'm sure, have been our lifelong fans. They haven't been involved in U.S. pro soccer for very long. Uh, Camiso for, you know, basically 14 months. So I tweeted while he was on the air with Jason a question for him. Uh, I was hoping Jason would maybe see it and ask Robert uh, during the course of the interview. 
about whether he would consider affiliating through U.S. adult soccer. Because Palmer was looking at this thing called Division Zero, which is essentially the assumption that the U.S. Pro League standards are keeping out a lot of people who would otherwise be able to get a pro league going. And there's probably some truth to that. Now, there's a reason why it is. If you go back historically through the old USISL, which became the USL, you'll see that they had very low standards, and as a result, a lot of clubs came and went. The idea behind the standards was to stop that. But you can certainly make a case that if you have a group of people with a significant amount of money, you shouldn't have to have one person who has $10 million, which is, or you shouldn't have to have a certain population base, or your league shouldn't have to have a certain number of teams that meet a certain, yet there are parts of the standards that are worth arguing about. Now, bear in mind, that has nothing to do with why the NASL wasn't playing this year. That's totally different. If the NASL had been willing to play at Division Three this year, I'm sure that could have been worked out. They weren't. So don't confuse those two issues. But what Palmer is doing is interesting because he was looking at it. First it came up as, well, let's look at doing something unsanctioned, which is usually a non-starter. Because if you play in a non-sanctioned league, you know, FIFA doesn't like that. And they might take it out on you and say, well, then you are banned from FIFA competitions. You can no longer play uh, for your national team or anything like that. That would not be a, a good thing. Now, I should point out that, you know, at least in other areas, it's not the end of the world. I mean, the... Major Arena Soccer League, MASL, which is about to hold its playoffs. Or, no, they're in the middle of the playoffs. They're down to four again. Yes, the Baltimore Blast are involved yet again. They do not play under the auspices of U.S. soccer. They're not a member. In fact, they're, for a while, that group was part of an organization called, not FIFA, but FIFRA. Football Rapido was the FR in there because it wasn't just indoor soccer. It was any sort of soccer with walls. And so fast-paced game, Football Rapido was what it was called. Uh, they've since morphed into other organizations. Um, but in any case, Major Arena Soccer League is not a FIFA organization. There are people who play in that who also play in for U.S. futsal teams. Now, bear in mind, futsal itself has a couple of different branches, but there are people who play for the official, you know, FIFA-affiliated futsal and FIFA-affiliated beach soccer and play in the Arena Soccer League. So they haven't been kicked out. So, you know, looking at an unsanctioned league, it's not the stupidest thing to do. I mean, there are plenty of reasons why you might not want to do it. And look, with the U.S. about to um, bid for a World Cup, well, they are bidding for a World Cup, they they don't really want to cause any trouble with FIFA right now and have an unsanctioned professional league, at least one that starts to put on airs that this is where the real soccer is being played and ignore that, you know, first division over there. We're the ones to pay attention to. That might cause some problems. So the question I asked was whether they had considered affiliating through U.S. adult soccer. And uh, Palmer actually wrote back, and I, I didn't quite make sense of his tweet, but it seemed to say that he wasn't, he, he didn't think that you could affiliate through U.S. adult soccer. Let's just put it that way. I didn't quite understand the reasoning. And he, he was saying, well, what about this law that says, you know, you must be affiliated in this number of states and so forth. And I, I explained that there is a, an existing league that is nominally professional. Now, they, when I say nominally professional, we're talking, it reminds me of um, the professional Ultimate League. You know, ultimate, used to be called Ultimate Frisbee, but they don't use Frisbees. They use this, so they call it an Ultimate. Anyway, I, I, there was a... 
I saw a great play there, and some people yelled out from the stands, that's why you get paid the double digits. You know, that, that's about the level of professionalism we're talking about in this league. And the league is the American Soccer League, the ASL, which in terms of history goes way back farther than the NASL because the ASL of the 1920s was huge. It was. Then the, the U.S. forgot about it for a while. But in any case, there is an operating ASL right now, and it's affiliated through U.S. Adult Soccer. And so I checked in with USASA and with the ASL and said, well, how are things going? Are there any problems? And I said, well, no. We seem to be able to do this. You know, just run a pro league. Again, they're not paying a ton of money. They're flying under the radar. So the, the Chattanooga Summit then that took place over the weekend makes a bit of sense. It's, hey, maybe we can take a look at going this route and going, sort of taking an end run around the pro lead standards. Let's see what happens there. And of course, we don't really know because so far no one has reported on this. But here is the thing that really might doom this movement. This summit took place and had various leaders of clubs and leagues. One person who was not there was Peter Wilt. You can rewind on this podcast several weeks ago, or I guess several months ago by this point. Again, time flies. Uh, Peter is leading the effort to start the NISA, NISA, at the Division Three level. He wants to start a new professional league. And... He specializes in startups, you might say. He helped start the Chicago Fire. He helped start the Chicago Red Stars, which still play uh, in women's soccer. He started teams in the indoor leagues. He helped start Indy 11, which was played in the NASL until this past season, or until, uh, well, until this year, they're joining the USL. Why do you have that summit without Peter Wilt? I'm looking into it. I'm hoping to get some information about that, and I'll do some reporting on that and put it on the on the blog. But again, I do need to get back to the U.S. youth soccer landscape and to what's going on with the guide. But I, again, I am looking into the Chattanooga Summit. If you have any information on the Chattanooga Summit, <laughs> feel free to let me know. Because as of this recording, and I'm recording on Tuesday the 13th, uh, mid-afternoon mid Eastern time. I don't have a lot to go on. It's going to be interesting to see how that shapes out. And yeah, it may affect youth development down the line. I mean, perhaps uh, the pro league standards certainly need to be revisited at some point. That That's clearly, clearly true. And perhaps instead of saying, oh, you have to have an owner worth $10 million, perhaps they say you have to have a youth academy. You know, it can be meeting such and such criteria if you want to be Division Three, such and such for Division Two, and so on. And of course, I've argued that perhaps there shouldn't be pro league standards. Perhaps it should be pro club standards, which would change everything. Then you could have a league come in that meets very basic criteria. You know, you have to have a staff of this many people. You have to have an anti-doping program, and that's about it. And then it's up to the clubs to meet the divisional criteria. But we'll talk about all that on the blog. The podcast, for the rest of this podcast, let's listen to Mike Davitt, very thoughtful parent, very thoughtful soccer coach. We talk a good bit about what is and isn't working, about the proliferation of leagues, which in his case... It, can really help. He's in an area that doesn't have a, a lot going on around it, so his his team needs to travel a good bit. And it, just a reminder that I can't sit in my living room in Northern Virginia just as someone else can't sit in an office in Chicago and assume that we know everything that's going on and come out with things that work for everyone. So here it is, the conversation with Mike Davitt. 
So our guest today on Ranting Soccer Dad is someone I have never met, and never spoken with before. So this is going to be fun. But he, uh, his name is Mike Davitt, and let's start. Why don't you introduce yourself? Well, first off, thank you for having me on. I appreciate it. Um, I right now I reside in uh, Eastern Pennsylvania, uh, the Wilkesboro Scranton area, Northeast. Uh, I grew up in New Jersey, a town called Kearney. Uh, soccer is uh, very big in that town, and uh, grew up, and that's where I got the uh, playing bug and coaching bug. Um, played ever since I was young, uh, went through the recreation system, the travel system, uh, decided to go to a business school in college, did not play collegiately, but knew from when I was younger that I wanted to coach. So... Ever since I was 19 years old, I've been coaching uh, various club teams, uh, camps, coached collegiately. Currently, I'm coaching a high school boys team as well as my U13 girls travel team. I living up in Northeast PA in the Wilkesboro Scranton area. This area has been very good to me uh, with coaching a lot of opportunities. Soccer is not the first sport up here, if you will. However, there's a lot of passion for the sport, people who coach it, the players, and so on. Uh, but there's still a lot of development to go on in this area, and a big challenge, if you will, and that's why I really enjoy living in this area and coaching. Uh, it gives me a lot of challenges, uh, not just for the players, but also from the parent standpoint, to educate the parents and uh, to move this game forward, uh, at least in our local area. And so you mentioned Kearney, New Jersey. I have to ask them, did you get to play with or against John Hartz or Tony Miola or Dad Ramos? Well, uh, it's funny that you say that because now they're, they're all older than me. Uh, John is like about six years older than me. He lived, actually, I grew up down the street from him. Um, I know his family really well. His father uh, took over our travel team when we were in high school for a year, uh, which was a nice experience. Uh, you know, great family. Uh, but, yes, know them all. Don't know them all personally to the level that one would think. Um, but at the same time, it was fun as a kid going to those high school games and watching them play where you have – you know, a thousand people more watching and supporting uh, the local boys uh, at the high school level. Yeah, one of these days I'm going to have to apologize to the three of them uh, for anything I yelled at them from the stands at Duke. Because uh, two of them went to Virginia and one of them went to uh, NC State. Uh, so, <laughs> so, the, so the reason I'm having you on today is because uh, this is essentially in response to my rant about whether or not you uh, – Youth soccer is doomed to suck. Uh, you are taking the stance that it is not uh, doomed to suck, uh, which I know is a very broad statement. But can we start perhaps with just something positive that you've seen in your experience as a coach uh, and as a parent, or even back as a player if you want, even though that was I – mean, you're younger than I am because I'm the same age as Hartson Yola and those people, but, uh, but still – Things have changed rapidly in youth soccer. What are you seeing now that you like? I just see the progression that we're making. I mean, I don't think as a nation, um, whether it's for youth soccer or just soccer in general, that we go back and look at the last 30, 35 years and enjoy the progression that we've made with this sport. Um, you know, back when, even going back when we made the, the 1990 World Cup, um, and then hosted the World Cup in 94. Now we have a men's and women's uh, professional league. And then on the youth side, we have a U.S. club that came into the picture to push the envelope, which I think is very positive. The development academies, the ECNL, there's so many more opportunities for these players to grow and to get higher-level coaching. Um, I don't think we really look and enjoy the progression um, I think our expectations are higher, which is fantastic. Um, you know, we didn't make the World Cup this this turn, and instead of saying, "Well, we hope to make the World Cup," we were expected to make the World Cup, and then everybody started um, 
wanting to make all these changes. I think we're on the right path, though. I think the next 25, 30 years down the road, we're going to look back and say the Development Academy and programs and, and leagues like ECNL are good for the youth game to produce higher-level players. Um, now, on a smaller front, I have a U13 girls team. We play in a competitive league, um, EDP, and, mm -hmm. you know, there's multiple levels. By no means are we in the top level. Um, but at the same time, for where we are, I see very professional coaching. I hear what the coaches say to their players. It's all positive and uh, good information that's, uh, that they're instructing their players. It's fantastic competition. Uh, it's at the level that we maybe my team should be at right now, um, and it's just, and it's very positive. Now I'm not going to paint the you know paint it as uh, all rosy, and and I've seen the other side of youth soccer, especially at tournaments, and I've seen you know the parents and the coaches you know yelling and screaming and you know giving instruction that they shouldn't be. But at the same time, on the positive front, I, I like to stay positive and say we're doing a, a great job. And if we reflect back to where we started from, I know we started many, many years before I was born, but even from 25, 30 years ago, we've come a long way in a short period of time, and I think it's very exciting for our country. So you do mention all these organizations that have pushed things forward, and uh and EDT, I'm, I'm familiar with because they reach all the way down here to Virginia as well. Uh, you know, so it's a kind of traditional league in a sense that has promotion relegation in different divisions and so forth, but it's, it's, um, regional in the sense that it spans, you know, a pretty long way down I-95. Um, so all these different organizations do indeed give people different choices. Um, I guess you also mentioned parent education. So what can we do to explain all these choices to parents? Because that's where it seems some of the problem comes in. There are some people, I mean, the stereotype, I don't know how often it's true, but of, of people who are playing at, you know, a lower division of a local league and think that their kid is on the same level as a development academy kid uh, because maybe that club uses the word academy and uh, and muddies the waters a bit. How How do we help parents navigate all those choices? I do believe that the clubs, the individual clubs, do have a big responsibility. They have to educate the parents um, on what level their child is playing at. Using the word academy is not appropriate unless you are a development academy, in my opinion. You can go look at you can go look at them play. You can go look at a uh, a practice, and there's nothing academy about it. The word academy um, was like the old word of premier or classic or whatever other words you want to use. It, it's, it really doesn't mean anything. It's to really bring more players into the fold to say we're an academy. They're just a club, but we're an academy. And I think parents have to really put their thinking caps on and, and try to you know, say, okay, well, what's the difference between your club slash academy and this team that's just called the travel club? And start asking more questions. But at the same time, the club has to be more responsible. The club has to sit down with the parents, whether it's an individual or a group, and say, your player is on this team at this level. This is the league they are playing at. And inform them of the path they could be on. I mean, U.S. soccer has coaching paths, but why can't the clubs take those coaching paths and then bring them to the parents and slash their own coaches as well and show them the path that they want these players to go on, uh, a short-term a short plan, a medium-term plan, and a long-term plan? And not to say that, obviously, not every player is going to be a professional. That's not the, the key here. The key is, what are our short-term goals for this particular age group? Then from there, what's our medium-sized goals? And then what's our long-term goal if the player stays with the club and, and, and picks soccer to be their choice of sport? So I think a lot of dialogue needs to go back and forth. I don't think there's enough of that. 
it's kind of like the wild, wild west out there at times. Player, parents just sign up kids. They kind of just let them go and trust that the organization or the coach or the coaching director is going to take on that role of educating the player. I don't mean just on the ball, um, but also give them the right path. So the parents also need to take that role of responsibility to ask more questions, like they would do in school. You know, I'm going into third grade. I'm with this particular teacher. Well, what goals or do you have for my child? What is the proper steps? What can I do at home to help my child? This is no different. It's just a sport. It's a lot more fun, I would say, than school. But at the same time, the parents still need to be more engaged, as well as the clubs need to be more open and honest and forthright in what their goals are for that particular child. Okay, so that from it, it sounds like you and I could probably come up with a good list of things that clubs should be doing uh, on the administrative level and uh, should teach their coaches to do, and a lot of it has to do with good, honest communication. Um, I guess the question would be, how do we make everybody do that? Because we've certainly seen examples. I mean, I even uh, I, I've seen plenty of examples in this area of people saying, oh, yeah, we'll, we're, we'll guide your kid to college and the pros and so forth. And uh, we're talking about kids that aren't even going to make their high school teams because it's very competitive to make a high school team here. So how how do we do that? Now, of course, I, I'm trying to do that myself. That's the point of the uh, Guide to Youth Soccer that I'm starting to work on is to help educate parents in that respect. And also at SoccerParenting.com, Skyady Bruce's organization, uh, tries the same sort of thing, but um, should, is this the sort of thing that where U.S. soccer needs to come in and start setting standards, or is this simply a thing where parents and coaches need to start working together to um, to have better communication? I think it's a little bit of both. I think U.S. soccer needs to come in and give a, a platform for the parents to go. Um, you had a guest on, I don't remember the guest's name, who has a um, a website, if you will, parents can go directly and get educated on the sport and get educated on certain things with youth soccer. I think, I think that was Guy Bruce. Yeah. Okay, yes. And yeah. youth soccer, if they took on that role, added a link onto their website of – um, you know, or it gives the parents a pathway. So, you know, also the coach is a pathway to coach, the parents a pathway to be more educated in the sport. Um, hmm. I think that would be a proper thing to do. I mean, on their website, come to, you know, it, it shows all the coaching availability, but not one item last time I checked shows if you're a parent, this is what you can expect or should expect. Now, individual leagues might have that on their site, um, but at the same time, the league that I was with prior to um, EDP, no, I don't remember that league ever pushing that out to the parents to say, this is what you should read as a parent. It was on there for them to see, but it wasn't, it wasn't pushed to them to say, please read this just so you know what, you're, what, you, what you expect from our league and from your organization. Um, so there's a lot that both we all can do. Like I said, it just comes down to, I think, simple communication. But at the same time, the parents need to communicate with each other. Well, let's face it, not everybody knows everything about what they're getting their child into. My daughter is in dance and cheerleading. And you know what? I bring her to dance class, and I, I'll say I can kind of understand the mentality with, with parents of soccer. I drop her off. She comes out. She has a smile on her face. I ask her how everything went, and away we go. As long as I see a smile on her face, then I know everything is okay. And I think that's where parents, um, you know, that's where their mentality is now with soccer. They see the smile on the face. They see them interacting with their friends. They're happy. They're so lucky. And they're saying everything's fine. Um, so at the same time, clubs, like I said before, need to take on that responsibility of not promising the moon and the stars. Nobody can promise anybody anything. You know, you don't know how a player is going to develop. You don't know how they're going to react once they start getting this skill and they start advancing and they start getting to that, that next level. I mean, that's why they're, they're a dime a dozen to make it to the professional ranks. But it, that's a red flag for the parents right there. Someone said, I can get your player to, 
you know, play Division One college. I can get your player to play in the professional leagues. You know what? I like I like to know how. That's first and foremost hmm. because you can look over in England. You can look over to any uh, academy, a professional academy development uh, program over in any country in Europe. And how many of those kids are making it to the uh, first team? You know, and right. yeah. So if they have a lot more experience than we do to get players there, and obviously the players aren't getting there at a rapid rate, then who makes a think? You know, who, who should think that somebody in our country can get them there any quicker, any better? Um, now, with that said, there's some fantastic clubs out there that, from top to bottom, they have that open communication. And they have the structure where they have multiple teams in the one age group. They have a development academy. They have an ECNL um, uh, place for them to play if you if you develop to that level. If not, we have a team for you. And not that the team is bad. The coaching's still superb. You know, their their philosophy doesn't change. It just this is the team that you're with. This is the level that you're at. And I think if the parents take the mindset of Okay, where's my, where's the level of my 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 son or daughter now? It's the same process. If you if you go to a new school, they give you a test to say what what classes you should be in. They don't want to they want to challenge you, but they don't want to overwhelm you. I don't think this is any different. Players should be placed on a team that he or she is going to enjoy the sport, excel, and put them in an environment where they can enjoy their friends, enjoy the sport, and hopefully develop as a player. And then if they exceed that, then hopefully they can move up to another level. And if they don't, that's okay. Being in that place at that time for whatever amount of time is is wonderful. They're in the sport, they're playing, and they're participating, and they're enjoying the travel experience, and that's what it's all about. Now, one thing that you and I have mentioned is, um, I think we mentioned it before we started the recording, was uh, the concept of self-esteem and how soccer is a game, well, most sports have uh, a winner and a loser, or or occasionally you tie. Um, But, you know, there, there are teams that do better than others. You know, someone always gets to be the first place team. Someone always has to be the last place team. So... Uh, how do you see self-esteem issues uh, coming out? Um, really, the, the negatives I see are for the, sort of the ones that are at the bottom, the ones who lose a lot, and also for the top, perhaps getting overly inflated uh, senses of self-esteem. How, how do you uh, deal with that balance as a coach and as a parent? Well, as a coach and a parent, I handle it um, similar ways. Uh, first off, as a parent, I talk to my child constantly, not just about soccer, about her other activities, school, what's going on, etc. I try to look for any type of signs that her uh, self-esteem is, is low. Um, I try to keep the lines of communication going, and it's not just me, it's my wife as well. Um, Got to make sure I put that in there proper, because that is the truth. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, but on, on a soccer front, though, You know, I'm balancing this out. I'm trying to look at all of these kids as I would look at my own child. Now, within a certain area, of course, and now that I've had this team since they were uh, U9, uh, so now for the last five years, you know, we've had some players come and go. But for the most part, I have a good core of the team there. And so I really know these children well. I know when they're down. I know when they're excited. I know when there's something on their mind. And I speak to them. I ask them if everything's okay. I might say something to a parent afterwards and say, she didn't look too good today, meaning is she feeling okay? She just looks down. She doesn't look herself, just to kind of give them a heads up. Um, So I just think, again, it comes down to the communication, being aware. Now, with the winner and the loser, um, I really think it depends on what age group you're in. I mean, over in Belgium, they don't start playing competitively, um, you know, keeping track until U14 when they play 11 v 11. Everything is just play uh, to develop, and there's no winner, there's no loser. Now, 
our country's built where we like to have a winner, we like to have a loser. Um, and you know what? There's nothing wrong with that either, as long as if, if it's done with the frame of mind that we go out there, we do our best, we try to take what we learned in practice and develop it on the field. And if we come out on top, great. If we don't, that doesn't mean anything. It means, you know, it could have just been a one nothing game with a shot that deflected and went into the back of the net. Does that mean you're a bad team or a bad player because of that? Absolutely not. Now, if you're constantly in a losing bracket and you're constantly getting beat pretty good, you may need to talk to the coach and the organization to find out, are this group of players and the team, are they in the right bracket? You know, they may need to, you know, be reevaluated from there. Um, and also, what is the coaching techniques? What do they teach? Maybe they're teaching these kids too far in advance than what they should be. You know, there's times where with my team, I give them a break in the summer. When we come back, I don't start where I ended. I pick up, you know, I go back a, a bunch of steps, and I start from the basics again because I want to build up their skill. And, and and I do that occasionally throughout the year if I'm, if I'm giving them some some type of drill or some type of plan, lesson plan, that I don't feel like they're handling properly, I'll take a step back and I go back with something a little more simple. It just could be something as where the kids are in, in a different um, bracket or the training is just too high for them and they can't handle it, therefore they're not developing properly because they just can't handle what they're being taught. I mean, it could be a combination of a few things. Okay. And you mentioned not keeping score for a while, and that's that's certainly something that I think a lot of people are, are getting on board with. Um, I think most of the leads that I see are, are at least are de-emphasizing results and, and so forth. Uh, the, the, the issue that I end up having with that is that um, you might see – Say at U nine when, which is the first age that in our area, that's the first year you play travel, uh, and so you don't keep score. But what happens is that then in your league play, at least, uh, there's no way of kind of evening out the competition. You know, no one's really coming around and saying, "Hmm, this team is losing all its games 15 nothing. maybe it should be dropped down, or this team is winning all its games 15 nothing. maybe they should be playing uh, tougher teams. So have you seen efforts uh, to sort of balance that out and, and maybe have people go around and not necessarily count goals scored and goals conceded, but say, hmm, let's adjust, the, uh, let's adjust this matchup next season. Do you ever see efforts like that? Absolutely. There's nothing wrong with that as an individual league to say, um, okay, from you, like the league that we participated in prior to EP was mm-hmm. from U9 to U12. We're not keeping, we're not keeping records or scores. Okay, fine. But that doesn't mean the organization, the uh, league, excuse me, could not keep track. Just, you know, send in our scores, send in your scores, so this way we can put you in the proper flight, maybe in the spring or the following year. And I agree 100% with that. I mean, just because you email a score to somebody, that doesn't mean it's going to be plastered all over the newspapers and all over a website. It's just for um, developmental reasons for these kids. Again, we have to look at the big picture, development, the developmental of these children so they can ex- succeed in the sport that, they're, that they enjoy playing. So putting them in the proper bracket Again, off that example of my child goes to a new school, has to take a test to find out what what level she should be at in her grade. This is no different. So, yes, by all means, these leagues should have a little bit more responsibility to say, instead of saying, no, no scores, that's it, just play for fun, which is fine, but then still email me your score because, you know what, we don't want Team B to be um, getting to the point where they're going to start losing players because they're not being competitive, we're going to put them in a proper bracket next year or in the spring so then they can compete a little bit better. But nobody else is going to know these scores. All of that sounds incredibly rational, which uh, means it probably doesn't happen as often as it should. So uh, you mentioned you've had 
sort of the core of your team together from U9, and that seems to be a conflict within some cores of, of U.S. soccer. Some people, well, even, say, AYSO, uh, Recreational League for the most part, uh, says break up the teams every season and mix them all up. Uh, and then I see a lot of resistance to that. I'm in a league where a couple of teams have been clearly better over than others just because of circumstances. You know, one groups of kids that want to keep playing recreational soccer together and they don't want to go to travel. Um, and, you know, we try to break them up and the parents say, no, I, I want – it's not that we're winning. I, I like these kids. We want to all play together. So um, how important is it to you to let, you know, kids that know each other, friends, families that know each other, uh, to remain together uh, and – perhaps even make that in some cases more important than saying, well, he, this this child might be a slightly better player if she went off to a team that's playing in the EDP's top division or uh, or another league. How important is it to you to have that sort of thing, to have that team together? Well, I think it depends on each coach's mindset and what their ultimate goal is. Like I said to you before, I've been coaching since I've been 19, and I I enjoy building something. I enjoy taking a team from the ground and, and bringing them up as far and developing as, as much as I could to a level that I could um, and giving those kids the same positive travel experience that I had growing up. That's my goal. Um, now, with that said, um, you had on Kevin Payne from U.S. Soccer, and mm-hmm. he talked about briefly about how we we need an American solution to some of the soccer issues in our country. We can't look a- abroad for the solution because we have a different culture, different um, landscape. Well, if we take that a step further, my landscape and my culture where I'm from is different from the landscape and the culture that you're from. We don't have as many people playing soccer in our area that you do in Virginia. We have we don't even have a local league. We our local league is an hour and fifteen minutes away, and I don't mean EDP. I'm talking about the Lehigh Valley League that we started in. We mm. get home games, so that's why we, for example, my team went to EDP because if we took a step further and went down to Philadelphia, they don't give our teams from our area home games. We have to play all our games away. So EDP gives us home games. With all that said, our landscape is different than yours. We, we don't have clubs up here with multiple teams and multiple age groups. Our club that I'm with, we have one team. Every other club in here has one team per age group because we're, we don't have the amount of kids that these bigger, more populated areas do. So, one, we have to develop what we have and two, we have to make sure that we're giving these kids the same wonderful experience that, like, for example, that I had. Um, so if we lose players, we're losing them. We can't be promised that we're going to replace them, first of all, but then on the second breath, we're not going to replace them with a player at the same level. So now we have to pretty much almost start over with a particular player because they're coming in with less experience because – Again, travel soccer up here isn't the uh, end-all, be-all. It's a nice benefit to soccer, but at the same time, for the for the people who live in the area that, that I live in right now, there's a lot of traveling. There's a big commitment. So junior high school up here is really big. School sports is really big in general. So your question, the kids can get that from – if they don't play recreation soccer anymore, they can get that from their junior high programs. They can get that from their high school programs, the togetherness, the the bonding with their with their friends locally. But at the same time, we are a family. We are bonding. This is just a different part of the development of this kid. So my my daughter has her friends locally, and then she has her soccer friends and her, that family. And you know what? She's just as happy as if she was playing recreation with all her friends from one town or if she was playing four hours away in Maryland and, and playing with her soccer friends. 
to me, they're they're all adjusting properly. They're all one and the same. They all hang out together, and they all interact with their with each other's friends from school. So then that expands their uh, friendships and you know and and all their social um, aspects that go along with that. All right, sounds like that's working out really well. So I think my last question for you then will be um, the, or the other asset of cost and travel and so forth is not on the player but on the coach. And coaching education was something that came up a good bit uh, in the election that just finished, as it, as it should, uh, because it's something that I think a lot of us have noticed that you have people who have to travel great distances and spend a lot of money just to get a D license. And how is how do you see that playing out where you are? Uh, do you have many opportunities in your area to get coaching licenses? I, I'm, I'm guessing you already have most of the ones that you would that you would want, but uh, other coaches around you. Uh, if I were coaching, if I were your next door neighbor and wanted to get work my way up to a speed license, uh, how easy would it be to do that? Honestly, they would have to travel. Uh, locally, mm-hmm. no. There's not a club big enough. Uh, locally here that would be able to um, bring a uh, a license here. Um, there used to be, and when I first started getting my licenses, I got it locally. But unfortunately, um, you know, it wasn't consistent enough. So yes, we'd have to travel, again, maybe an hour, hour and a half, any direction to probably get that. Um, I like with uh, the U.S. Um, uh, soccer coaches, because they have a lot of online uh, experiences now. And if you go for uh, a, a certain level license, they will come to you in your environment to test you, if you will, to to see if you're progressing, progressing with, within the license. Um, you know, but unfortunately, in our area, we do have to travel. With that said, I don't want to make it sound like that there's not a lot of positive coaching up here. There's a lot of uh, fantastic collegiate coaches that have their doors open that will they will speak to and train anybody that they, um, if you ask them to. Um, there's a lot of knowledge in this area as well, and it's just not as deep or as spread out as some of the populated areas. Um, but yes, by all means, I, I really do think uh, these organizations, uh, for example, we'll say locally here, need to take a responsibility with all their coaches and guide them to these licenses. Not saying that you have to go for an A license. Even if you go up to a D license and get that extra knowledge behind you, be able to put out, be able to know what you're talking about on the field and strategize, if you will, and give the kids a, a positive practice environment. Um, you know, I think that's just that alone would go a long way with developing players and, and giving them um, the proper tools to, to move forward. So it's interesting that you can actually sort of find a, a mentor on a college campus fairly readily uh, without necessarily having a formal licensing program to back that up. That's, that's something that hasn't occurred to me. I wonder if there's any way to sort of merge those programs or, or bring – uh, Paul Calagiri had the idea of using every high school coach as essentially a U.S. scout. Uh, I wonder if there's any way to use every college coach as a coaching educator, uh, for example. Um, well, that's something I'll have to take a look at. I I think it's a great idea. I mean, some I don't know all these coaches, collegiate coaches up here personally. Um, you know, all their backgrounds, but the ones that I do know, they all have uh, A or B license. Um, they're they're very good in what they do. Um, one program up here in particular is is uh, has been nationally ranked the past few years, so their program's really taken off. And so there's a lot of positives. I think that's a that's a brilliant idea um, to have these collegiate coaches and kind of like train the trainer, if you will, you know. And um, there's no reason. I mean, again, a lot of these courses you need X amount of coaches to attend or they won't have the courses. That's why I really do think online is the way to go, especially for a small area like us. Now, unfortunately, you don't have that interaction, but if you have an outlet where you can come to somebody locally, like one of these collegiate coaches um, that has the license behind them and has the credibility, 
and you can then reach out to them to ask them the questions. It stays local. You get your answer immediately. And I think that's a great idea. So our goal here was to make me feel better about Youth Soccer, and I, I, I think I do. I think that's accomplished. And we now we have one good idea. So uh, to wrap up with, <laughs> let's say you're talking with the parent of a eight-year-old child who has played, you know, maybe a little bit of playground soccer, hasn't really been in a formal environment yet, but they're thinking about it. They're they're thinking, hmm, this this might be something my child is interested in doing. Uh, what would be your 60-second sales pitch? to that parent? My sales pitch with them would be to try it. Um, obviously, try recreation, but also try uh, another level, travel, if you will, um, because the benefits uh, for that child to really develop, and not just, I don't mean on the ball, but just to develop socially and have a sport that they can call their own and gravitate to that sport, um, I think is, is key. My job is to keep as many kids playing as possible. My job is to make my players into coaches when they grow up, make them into referees if that's the way they want to go, or at the very least make them fans of the sport. As long as we can accomplish that, that's how we're going to evolve this sport. Um, so, yes, I would say try other things, but do not turn your back on soccer. It's a wonderful game. It's a wonderful experience. And there's a lot more good in the game than there is negative. And so it's unfortunate people focus on the negative. But I really think your child will excel and enjoy the sport. Because let's face it, not everybody can hit a baseball. Not everybody could, you know, uh, throw a basketball into a basket. But everybody can kick the ball. We just got to teach them how to do it properly. All right. Well, thanks. It's very good to talk with a, a thoughtful parent and coach. And uh, really appreciate it. Thanks so much for joining us today. Thank you. Appreciate the time. So there you go. Not every guest has to be a celebrity. And NetSuite's wide open for now. Looking at a couple of people, a couple of invitations out there, but we'll see. Thanks for listening. Tune in next week. Read the blog. soccerdad.com